Good morning, church. Today is a day that we celebrate a transition. The transitions are really important in life. So to the graduates, whether that's college, high school, or a little bit of both, congratulations. You guys have done an amazing job. We're very proud of you, right? Can we show them how proud of them we are? Well done. We celebrate you, we congratulate you, and at the same time, we want to support you and we want to help prepare you because in a time of transition, what you need most is a sure foundation. Transition is a time where testing comes, where trial comes. We can all attest to that. If you have moved or have had any type of transition in your life from job to job, from school to school, from person to person, whatever it might be, Transition is a time of testing, a time of storm, you might say. And in those transitions, graduates, you need to remember your foundation, what your parents taught you, your education, specifically the Word of God. Today's text is all about foundations. It's all about the importance of a foundation in the midst of trials. So let's stand and read Matthew 7, 24 through 29, which doubles as a charge To the graduates, again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 29. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Let's pray as you're seated. Lord, this morning we call upon you to help us. We ask for your grace. We ask for understanding now of your word to know how to apply it and mold our lives around it. We rely upon your grace there in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jesus is bringing the Sermon on the Mount to a close. Last week I mentioned that the conclusion or the epilogue for the sermon started back in Verse 13 of chapter 7. It's been a long ending. The epilogue contained four pairs of possibilities for every person. You'll recall last week. The saved and the unsaved was the first. The good and the bad tree. And the known and the unknown. Through this conclusion, Jesus has been heightening a call to response. Including everybody in that call. He's been heightening a call to discipleship. A disciple enters by the narrow gate. A disciple watches out for those who claim to be prophets but are really wolves. And a disciple is known by Jesus as the basis of their salvation. In this last pair of possibilities, we find two potential ways people can respond to the words of Jesus. So with something as monumental as the Sermon on the Mount, the last words mean a lot. And what we find is a parable. 
You know, every time we read a parable of Jesus, he's calling us to engage our imaginations. It's a story. It's a word picture. He's giving us something that's going to communicate to us on a deeper level. So that's what we need to do now. Let's engage our imaginations and picture two men building their homes. We aren't told of any differences in the houses themselves, what they look like, how long it took to build them, what style they built them in, how many rooms there are, etc., etc. We don't have any of those details. We're only told two details. We're told about the man, and we're told about his respective house and the outcome. One man, a wise man, built his house on a rock. Another man, a foolish man, built his house on sand. So we can picture these two houses. Use your imagination. Maybe even right across a river from each other. Nice houses, perfectly suited for their owners. Nothing wrong or weird on the outside. And on the sunny and pleasant days, both houses do great. They serve as houses. Nothing seems wrong. But then in the parable, the storm comes. Both houses experience the same kind of storm. Maybe even the same storm. Jesus uses almost identical words to describe the storm when talking about both homes. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on or against the house. A massive storm hits and the waters of the river begin to rise beyond its shoreline and the wind beat against the house mercilessly. And by the end, when the storm's over, only one house is left standing. The other house has ended in complete catastrophe. Jesus even says, and great was the fall of it. Maybe Jesus had Florida in mind when giving this parable. This sounds like a category five, right? The difference between the two houses was whether or not they were were founded on the right foundation. The difference between the houses was whether or not they lasted through the storm. It all came down to the bedrock. One built on rock, one built on sand. So there are two key ideas from the final words of Christ here in Matthew 7 that leap out from the page. Two Christian concepts that we need to come to grips with as Jesus wraps up his sermon. First, we need to consider Jesus' call to obedience. Obedience. Look again at verse 24. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Now look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. So Jesus gives us two possible responses to his sermon. These words of mine. Notice notice how both possibilities include the fact that they hear the words of Jesus. Hearing the words of Christ is not what's the issue here. Everybody has that in common. He wants us to hear his words, and then he wants us to do them. Ultimately, the whole parable comes down to that simple distinction. Doing the words of Jesus that you hear or not. It comes down to obedience. The one who hears the words of Jesus and does them is like a wise man. But the one who hears the words of Jesus and does not do them is a fool. So the words of Jesus are not ignorable platitudes that sound really nice in the moment. 
They're not empty commands either that he doesn't expect his disciples to be able to follow. Jesus is telling us that he, in fact, does expect his disciples to put into practice the things that he's told them here in the Sermon on the Mount. So that gives us a great opportunity. Let's take some time here at the end of the sermon to review it all and see where Jesus has brought us. First of all, remember that the Sermon on the Mount is all about the kingdom of heaven. That's the topic. It's all about the kingdom of heaven. It's all about what the kingdom will be like and what the citizens of that kingdom would be like. It's Jesus's kingdom manifesto. You remember that? It's his kingdom manifesto. He started with eight statements of blessing, the Beatitudes. They sketched a picture of what this citizen of the kingdom of heaven would look like in miniature. They're poor in spirit meaning they understand their spiritual condition before God. They mourn over their sin, and this makes them meek as they understand their inability to save themselves. Yet, they hunger and thirst for righteousness. Then they're merciful toward others in light of the mercy they've received. They're pure in heart and that their motivations have changed. They're peacemakers, just as Christ is a peacemaker. And they're willing to undergo persecution for the sake of Christ and his righteousness. Those are the eight Beatitudes. And they're a mini-manifesto of the kingdom. They describe the common citizen of heaven. And when we went through them, we spent three weeks on the Beatitudes. We asked, asked each week, do they characterize you as someone who claims to be a citizen of the kingdom? And each Beatitude spoke of a reward. And that means that every citizen of heaven, every single one, will inherit all of the following. They'll inherit the kingdom. They'll find comfort in mourning. They'll inherit the earth. They'll be satisfied. They'll receive mercy. They'll see God. And they'll be called sons of God. Praise the Lord. The depths of the Beatitudes are impossible to plumb. We could have spent many more weeks on them. They're rich in wisdom for us. And Jesus starts there for a reason. They set the tone, right? They set the tone for the whole sermon. After the Beatitudes, Jesus tells his disciples that they're supposed to be the salt and the light of the world, staving off rot and shining the truth of the gospel to the lost like a city on the hill. So it would be a shame to fall short of both of those things as tasteless salt, which is thrown out, or a covered light, which is useless. The Beatitudes and the call to be salt and light formed the foreword to the Sermon on the Mount, or the introduction. Chapter 5, verse 17 starts the meat, or the body of the sermon. And in these verses, Jesus tells us that he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. So we're not supposed to relax any law, but we're supposed to teach them and follow them as Christ teaches them and follows them. Jesus therefore, becomes the ultimate interpreter of the law and what is required of righteousness for every Christian. But he ends this section with a startling statement that carries us into the rest of chapter 5. You'll remember it well. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll remember that Jesus isn't calling us to a wider righteousness or more laws than the scribes and Pharisees. That would be impossible. He's calling us to a deeper heart righteousness, 
And then he demonstrated what that deeper righteousness would be like in the rest of the chapter. So in 21 through 26, we found that we're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder, even if we hate someone in our hearts. And in 27 through 30, we found that we're guilty of breaking the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery, even if we lust after someone in our hearts. In 31 through 32, Jesus reveals that marriages actually matter and that divorce does a lot more damage than we originally thought. In 33 through 37, Jesus unveiled the fact that we are poor promise keepers. The citizens of heaven should simply say yes or no and not rely on promises or oaths to make a point, especially in the name of God. Then Jesus overturns our expectation about relationships in verses 38 through 48. We aren't to retaliate for an insult, but turn the other cheek. We aren't we are to give generously to those who ask and go the extra mile with them and have an open hand with the poor. And on top of that, Jesus told us something revolutionary. He told us to love our enemies and Pray for those who persecute us. And so in all these things, Jesus calls us to a deeper righteousness. He sees the expectations that we have and the human tendency to excuse sin. And he wipes that off the table. And he ends chapter 5 with, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But he immediately follows that up with a warning, you'll remember, in chapter 6. You see, we're all tempted to practice our righteousness before others, to make it seem like we're perfect. So Jesus calls us to a secret righteousness, that we should give and pray and fast as holy acts of worship before the Lord, not before men. So Jesus repeated the phrase, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you three times. Praise the Lord. These are things we should do. For him, not for other people. Along the way, Jesus gave us a model prayer as a starting point to know how to pray because we don't. In fact, we often pray to God as if we're begging him to do stuff for us or we just think that he doesn't want to hear from us at all. So Jesus gave us a model prayer. But in case we think the Father will reward us with great riches, Jesus calls us to lay up our treasure in heaven In chapter 6, verse 20. The Christian life is not the luxurious, self-fulfilling life that our culture promises you. It's a new way of living. A new way of seeing things with a healthy, restored eye. It's the life of service to the King of Kings, the Good Master. Again, praise the Lord. But if we're tempted to think that then the life of the Christian should be squalor and poverty without any expectations that God would meet our most basic needs, then we would be wrong. Jesus calls us to not be anxious about our lives, what we'll eat or drink or wear, but to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all our needs will be added to us. Praise the Lord. Which brings us to chapter 7. Chapter 5 was all about the law. And how Jesus calls us to a deeper righteousness. And it often had to do with how we treated others. And then chapter 6 mostly had to do with our relationship with God. Chapter 7 brings a little of both. First, Jesus calls us to look at others generously. Not with our money, but with compassion. Judge not, 
he says. We need to make sure that we take care of the logs sticking out of our own eyes before we nitpick other people's little sins. Easier said than done. This is done by the grace of God with constant repentance. And yet, we're supposed to be discerning, as verse 6 tells us. And in verse 7, Jesus implores us to pray to the Father. Ask, seek, knock. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. He calls us to persistent, bold prayers, which are welcomed by God. He, he, God, wants to give us the good things that he's prepared for us. Namely, his righteousness. Then the body of the sermon was wrapped up in verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. And that ended the, the sermon body proper. That was the bookend. Jesus starts by talking about how he has not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And he ends the body of the sermon by telling us, this is the law and the prophets. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. That's the foundation of the Christian ethic. We treat others how we want to be treated. Which brings us to today. In the midst of four final pairs of possibilities, the saved and the unsaved, the good and the bad tree, the known and the unknown, and now wise and the fool. The wise man, hearing the words of Jesus this whole time, all of these things, all of these marvelous, wonderful things, will take what he has heard and mold his life around them. That's the action of the wise man. He hears the call to reconcile with people and, and he follows through with it. He feels guilty about his lust and so he repents and he takes step, steps to kill his sin. He gives up his right to retaliation even when he's wronged, and he loves those he once considered enemies. He fosters the disciplines of giving and praying and fasting, knowing they are actual acts of worship before God that God sees. And he lays aside his service to money and his career and the security he finds there because he's realized that God should be his master, not his possessions. He places his faith in God to provide his needs. And he stops judging others for their petty sins. And he becomes more concerned about his own righteousness. He does to others what he wants done to him. Not in hopes that he'll receive something from them, but because now his heart toward other people is that of love. The wise man builds his house on the rock. So in this parable, the rock is nothing less than the words of Christ. The wise man, hearing these words, finds them to be the right foundation for the rest of his life. They become the bedrock, the starting point for him for everything else he does. He orients his life around these truths, around Jesus. But in life, as Jesus points out, being in the audience does not count as obedience. Mere attendance does not count eternally. As James says, and as we meditated on this morning, be doers of the word, not hearers only. Notice in the parable that the hearers still build. Life is still lived. 
And Jesus doesn't tell us of any difference in the building. So these may even be people in the same Christian community, both looking like Christians. The only way then of knowing which building would last through the storm was by seeing which one was still standing afterward. The foundation determined which man would be successful in their building project. The fool built his house on sand, which is a ridiculous thing to try to do. I can't even get an umbrella to stay up on a windy day at the beach. Why would this guy think that building on sand would be possible? There might be two helpful interpretations to answer that question. But both, again, are helpful. The first is that Jesus means it to sound ridiculous. Everyone knows you can't build a house on sand and expect it to last a long time. The ridiculousness of the picture draws us to conclude that just as a solid foundation is fundamental for a good home, so Jesus' words are fundamental to a righteous life. To try and build a righteous life apart from the words of Christ is like building a house on sand. In the end, it's all going to end in catastrophe. That's the first interpretation. The second is a bit more historically and archaeologically minded and maybe a bit of a reach, but it's helpful nonetheless. It's been said that in order to build a home at that time of Christ in the arid parts of Israel that he's in, one would have to dig deep in order to find ground proper to build a house on. That the hard-packed sand of Israel looks like rock, but you have to chip away to get to the bedrock. In chapter 6 of the Gospel of Luke, Luke records a similar parable of Jesus with one helpful difference. The wise man in that parable digs deep to find the rock beneath. So in the same way, the wise man hears the words of Jesus and carefully applies them to his life meticulously, with energy and a sense of immediacy. He doesn't wait. He does it now. He understands that work needs to be done, that he's not perfect, that he has sin. He doesn't assume the ground he's standing on is solid enough to support his house. He digs deep. He, he lets the work of the Lord, of the Holy Spirit, happen on his heart. He doesn't fight it. In other words, he is a doer of the word, not a hearer only. That way, when the storm comes, the house is still standing. The work has been done. The storm seems like a simple enough metaphor that we understand pretty quickly. We've encountered storms in life. We've all had times of trial, suffering, pain, loss of a job, loss of a loved one, so on and so forth. It's those stormy times of life that reveal what our foundation is, what we've built our life on. But the storm stands for more than trials and suffering and pain. We must be careful here. It, it does stand for that, but it stands for more. Throughout the epilogue of the sermon, Jesus has been bringing up an uncomfortable truth over and over again. And if we're not careful, we'll miss it. In verse 13, we read that the easy way leads to destruction. In verse 19, we read that every bad tree is cut down and thrown in the fire. In verse 23, we, we read that some people, though they've made, done many wonderful, miraculous things in the name of Jesus, 
will be told by Jesus to depart. In all of these things, Jesus is talking about judgment. God's judgment. And so it is here. The storm is judgment. Judgment is coming. God is a just judge. And he will judge all people. When that storm hits. The storm of judgment. What will become of your house? Upon what foundation is it built? Only those who have built their houses on the foundation of Christ and his word will survive that storm. So this is a call to obedience. It's a call to lay aside what we want and to conform our lives to Christ. What area of life are you holding on to what you want to do and not what God wants you to do? Especially in light of the words of the Sermon on the Mount. Don't leave the Sermon on the Mount without welcoming the Holy Spirit to do some work on your heart. We need to build our lives on the foundation of Christ or our houses won't survive the storm. And great will be the fall. Second, we need to consider Jesus' claim as the ultimate and final authority. Look again at verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribes. Remember all the way back in chapter 4, Jesus had crowds following him because he was healing a lot of people. He was doing many wonderful things. And in chapter 5, verse 1, we read, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So at the very beginning of the sermon, Jesus has separated himself from the crowds on purpose. But by the end, the crowds have gathered around him once again. They've been introduced to Jesus through his healing ministry, and they've been drawn again to him through his teaching ministry. And they are astonished. They haven't heard anything like this before. Jesus is teaching as one who has authority. Many walk away from the Sermon on the Mount moved by its beauty and, and convinced to change their life in this way or, or that way to, to be better. Many even view the sermon as the reason to call Jesus a good teacher in the strain of Confucius and, and others. Why do we need to think of Jesus as God or Savior, they might say, when he's clearly just a good moral teacher? This is good stuff. But if you walk away from the Sermon on the Mount thinking, that's all Jesus is, then you really didn't hear the sermon at all. Jesus taught as one who had authority. And Matthew helpfully clarifies that this is distinct from the way that scribes taught. The Jewish scribes and teachers of the law spoke by authority, meaning they cited all their sources and dropped many names in order to bolster their arguments and and their way of living and understanding the scriptures. They want their hearers to know that they know what they're talking about because they're well read. But Jesus never does that. In fact, he does the exact opposite. In chapter 5, you remember how often he says the formula over and over again. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Jesus doesn't speak by authority. He speaks 
with authority. Jesus is not like the scribes. But he's also not like the Old Testament prophets. That's another common belief about Jesus, that he was just another prophet in a long line of prophets delivering to the people what God wanted him to say. But unlike the prophets of old, Jesus never says anything like, thus saith the Lord. Last week, we talked about true and false prophets. Prophets are those who speak God's word to his people, or at least claim to. And in that sense, Jesus is certainly a prophet. But he's also much more. He doesn't simply relay the word of God to the people. He boldly claims that authority for himself. Jesus says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Jesus has been doing that throughout the sermon. Again, the common formula of chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, Jesus claims authority. Again, chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious. Jesus claims authority. But we shouldn't be surprised by that at all. Jesus claimed that authority back at the very beginning of the body of the sermon. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus claims to have the final say. He claims the right to interpret the law. He claims the right to tell us how to live. He even claims the right to tell us how to pray. Jesus is not merely a prophet. Jesus is not merely a good teacher, although he's both of those things. Jesus is king. Amen? And as the king of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus has the authority to speak in this way. The king of the kingdom of heaven is God. The words of the Sermon on the Mount are not just the words of a genius teacher or a profound prophet. They're the words of God delivered to us by Christ, who is God. The call to build upon the sure foundation of Christ ultimately fulfills what Jesus tells us in verse 21. They do the will of the Father in heaven. Those who build upon the sure foundation of Christ Do the will of the Father in heaven. Have you come to grips with the authority of Jesus over you and how you live? He is a sure foundation. He is the narrow gate. He is Lord. He is King. And it's only by understanding those truths that we we can even begin to understand the Sermon on the Mount. The citizens of the kingdom of heaven look like their king. They do what their king calls them to do. They have a sure foundation. The words of Jesus astonished the crowds. They should astonish us too. We're being confronted with Jesus, the king. Are we astonished by the authority and the majesty and the glory and the kingdom and the lordship of Christ? The words of the sermon should bring us to that point. We should walk away from this blown away by Jesus. But maybe the most astonishing thing is that the king of heaven, the one who has all authority and dominion, went to the cross for the citizens of heaven. The king 
took the place of a criminal so that we could be reconciled. You see, it's only by the grace of God, won by the righteousness of Christ in his death and in his resurrection, that anyone enters the kingdom of heaven. Amen? And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father, ruling over his kingdom, the church. And soon he will come again to establish his kingdom on earth and make all things new. Praise the Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. When we think of Jesus like this, when we view him as king and as Lord and as full of authority, it's hard to imagine wanting to build our lives on anything other than that. 